0: Welcome to another in-depth exploration of the book of Jeremiah Written by Imre Tokich Ph.D. LLD Edited for audio and produced by The Ambassador Group Exploration 13 Lessons from Jeremiah
1: Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, the New King James Version. We are now at the end of our study of Jeremiah. It's been an adventure. A lot of drama, emotion, and energy has been expended In the saga of our prophet. Like all the prophets, Jeremiah didn't write in a vacuum. His was a message from the Lord and for people at a specific time and place and under specific circumstances. And yet, however radically different his circumstances were from ours or from those of the many other generations who have read Jeremiah, Crucial principles expressed there are the same for God's people in every generation. Such as faithfulness to God and obedience to His commandments. Such as true religion, a religion of the heart, as opposed to empty and dead rituals that can leave people in a false state of complacency. Such as the people's willingness to listen to correction, even when it cuts across what they want to hear, such as true revival and reformation, such as trusting in the Lord and His promises instead of the arm of flesh, such as... The list goes on. In this exploration... Let's take a look at some of the many lessons we can learn from this revelation of God's love for His people, even amid many thunderous warnings to them about where their actions will lead.
0: Jeremiah's
1: Lord. Seventh day Adventists understand that at the center of the great controversy exists a crucial issue. What is the character of God? What is God really like? Is he the arbitrary tyrant that Satan makes him out to be? Or is he a loving and caring father? who wants only the best for us? These questions really are the most important questions in the entire cosmos. After all, what would our situation be if God were not kind and loving and self-sacrificial, but mean and arbitrary and sadistic, We'd be better off if no God existed than to have one like that. So, the questions are of huge importance. Fortunately, we have the answers, and they are best seen at the cross.
0: Never will it be forgotten that he whose power created and upheld the unnumbered worlds through the vast realms of space, the beloved of God, the majesty of heaven, he whom cherub and shining seraph delighted to adore, humbled himself to uplift fallen man, that he bore the guilt and shame of sin and the hiding of his father's face, till the woes of a lost world broke his heart and crushed out his life on Calvary's cross, that the Maker of all worlds, the Arbiter of all destinies, should lay aside his glory and humiliate himself from love to man will ever excite the wonder and adoration of the universe.
1: The book is entitled The Great Controversy, page 651. The author's name is Ellen G. White. How is the nature and character of God revealed in the following texts in Jeremiah? That is, what do these texts tell you about God? Jeremiah chapter 2. And verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned, rejected me, the fountain of living water, and they have carved out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 22, Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Do you not tremble in awe in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the seas, an eternal decree and a perpetual barrier beyond which it cannot pass. Though the waves of the sea toss and break, yet they cannot prevail against the sand ordained to hold them back. Though the waves and the billows roar, yet they cannot cross the barrier, is not such a God to be feared? Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 22. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am about to punish them. Their young men will die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters will die by famine. Jeremiah, chapter 31, and verse 3, the New International Version. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Jeremiah, chapter 3, and verse 7. I thought, after she has done all these things, She will return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous, faithless sister, Judah, saw it. These are just a few of the many images and expressions used in the book that reveal to us something of the nature and character of our God. He is the source of life, the powerful creator, a God of judgment, a God who loves us and calls us over and over to repent of our sins and to turn away from the paths that will lead to our destruction. What evidence have you seen in your own experience of God's Loving character.
0: Rituals and Sin
1: Remember the name Terry Eagleton? Here's another quote from his book entitled, Reason, Faith, and Revolution. Reflections on the God Debate, page 8 in the Kindle edition. There is a document that records God's endless, dispiriting struggle with organized religion, known as the Bible. Not quite true. And that's because the religion of the Bible, the religion that God has given humanity, has always been. And organized religion. On the other hand, there is no question that in the book of Jeremiah the Lord was seeking to get people away from the cold, dead, but very organized rituals that came to dominate their faith. Rituals that they believed covered their sin. As said earlier, yet it is worth repeating The vast majority of Jeremiah's struggles were with leaders and priests and people who believed that because they were the chosen ones of God, the children of Abraham, the covenant people, they were just fine with the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, connects us to that group. And if you belong to Christ, if you are in him, Then you are Abraham's descendants and spiritual heirs according to God's promise. What a sad deception. One that we, also of Abraham's seed, need to watch out for. What is the message of these two texts in Jeremiah? More important, how can we apply the principles in our own walk with the Lord? Text number 1, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 20. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba and the sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable and your sacrifices are not sweet and pleasing to me. Text number 2, Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10, the New International Version. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all ye people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors for ever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe? Safe? To do all these detestable things? For another perspective and another translational approach, let's listen to the New Living Translation of Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, We are safe? only to go back to all those evils again? If one ever wanted to find a situation that fits what has been called cheap grace, the term certainly applies to these verses. The people do all these sinful things and then come back to the temple and worship the true God, and claim forgiveness for their sins? God is not mocked. Unless these people change their ways, especially how they treat the weak among them, they are going to face harsh judgment. What a deception they are under. The belief that they can claim God's forgiveness and go on doing what they want Without regard to the conditions of the covenant, so that they can continue on in those sins. What is the difference between what Jeremiah is warning about and Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, when Jesus said, Those who are healthy have no need for a physician, but only those who are sick? Why is it important? To know that difference. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, the Amplified Bible. So much of the book of Jeremiah is directed toward the nation as a whole. Time and again, he talked about Israel and Judah corporately as God's choice vine. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21, the New International Version, or the Beloved of the Lord, chapter 11 and verse 15, and chapter 12 and verse 7. God's own heritage, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. His vineyard, Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 10, and his flock. Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 17. Without doubt, in the book of Jeremiah, we get a sense of the corporate nature of the Lord's calling to this nation. Of course, it's the same in the New Testament, where time and again the church is understood in a corporate sense. Here are three examples in the book of Ephesians from the Amplified Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things in every realm in subjection under Christ's feet, and appointed him as supreme and authoritative head over all things in the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So now through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God in all its countless aspects might now be made known, revealing the mystery to the angelic rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27 so that in turn he might present the church to himself in glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy, set apart for God, and blameless. Yet salvation is personal, not a corporate issue. We are not saved as package deals. (laughs) As with the New Testament church, The nation of Judah was composed of individuals, and it's at the level of the individual that the real important issues arise. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. New King James Version The famous text in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, though spoken to the nation as a whole, is written in the singular second person. That is, the you in each case is the singular form of the word. God is talking to each one individually. In the end, each one of us personally, we'll have to give an account of ourselves to God. We find that same thing in Jeremiah. What do these texts say about the importance of a personal, individual walk with the Lord? Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 7. Blessed with spiritual security is the man who believes and trusts in and relies on the Lord, and whose hope and confident expectation is the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10. I, the Lord, search and examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each man according to his ways, according to to the results of his deeds. Jeremiah chapter twenty nine and verse thirteen. Then with a deep longing you will seek me and require me as a vital necessity, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And Jeremiah chapter nine verses twenty three. And 24. Thus says the Lord Let not the one who is wise and skillful boast in his insight. Let not the one who is mighty and powerful boast in his strength. Let not the one who is rich boast in his temporal satisfaction. Let not the one who is rich boast in his temporal satisfactions and earthly abundance. But let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and acknowledges me, and honors me as God, and recognizes without any doubt that I am the Lord who practices Loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Take two. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the one who is wise and skillful Boast in his insight. Let not the one who is mighty and powerful. Boast in his strength. Let not the one. Who is rich. Boast in his temporal satisfactions. And earthly abundance. But let the one who boasts. Boast in this. That he understands and knows me and acknowledges me and honors me as God and recognizes without any doubt that I am the Lord who practices loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord." Though both testaments of the Bible talk about the corporate nature of God's church, true faith is a matter of each person, himself or herself, making a daily surrender to the Lord, a personal choice to walk in faith and obedience. Though there's no question that we are each individually responsible for our own souls, how can you make sure that you are doing everything you can to uplift and encourage others? Who do you know right now that you can say some kind and uplifting words to?
0: Twilight of the Idols.
1: What was one of the great sins that the people committed that Jeremiah had to deal with constantly? Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 15, tells us. We have heard the verses read from the New Living Translation, so this time we will hear the Lexham English Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh You must not learn the way of the nations, and you must not be dismayed by the signs of the heavens, for the nations are dismayed by them. For the statutes of the people are vanity. For it is a tree cut down from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with the tool. He decorates it with silver and gold. They straighten it with nails and hammers so that it does not stagger. They are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. (laughs) They cannot speak. Indeed, they must be carried, for they cannot march." You must not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Furthermore, to do good is not in them. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not revere you, O King of the nations? For you it is fitting, for among all the wise men of the nations... And in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. At the same time, they are stupid and foolish. In the instruction of idols, it is wood. Silver beaten from Tarshish is brought, and gold from Euphaz. The work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. All of them are the work of skillful people, but Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. Because of His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His anger. Thus you shall say to them, Gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth And from under these heavens. He is the maker of the earth by his power, who created the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he stretched out heaven. When he utters his voice, there is a noise of water in the heavens, and he causes the mist to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning. For the rain, and he causes the wind to go out from his storehouses. Everyone is stupid without knowledge. Every goldsmith is ashamed by his divine image. For his cast image is an illusion, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, a work of mockery. At the time of their punishment, they will perish. What's interesting in these verses is not just the way in which the prophet shows how vain and useless and silly these idols are, but how he contrasts them to the living God. These things are powerless, useless, empty, and false. What a contrast to the Lord who made the heavens and earth. He will endure forever while these idols will vanish forever. So, whom will you be worshipping and dedicating your life to? To that which is weak, false, vain, and powerless? Or to the Lord whose power and might is so great that he created and sustains the universe? The choice, of course, is yours to make. The fact is, we are in danger of falling into idolatry too. Though today we might not worship the same kind of idols that those in Jeremiah's time did, our modern life is full of false gods. These modern idols can be anything that we love more than God. Whatever we worship becomes our God, and we are guilty of idolatry. To be sure, worship doesn't always mean singing and praying. What are some of the things that we can be in danger of making into idols? What about things like digital devices, money, fame, even other people? Make a list of what these potential idols are, and then ask yourself, in the end, what real salvation do they offer? Of course, we know intellectually that none of these things are worthy of worship. We know that, in the end, nothing that this world offers us, nothing that we make into idols— can ultimately satisfy our souls and certainly not redeem them. We know all these things, and yet, unless we are careful, unless we keep before us Jesus and what he did for us and why he did it, we can so easily be swept up in a modern form of the idolatry similar to that which Jeremiah so passionately railed against
0: the remnant in the closing years of Judah's apostasy, the exhortations of the prophets were seemingly of but little avail, and as the armies of the Chaldeans came for the third and last time to besiege Jerusalem, hope fled from every heart. Jeremiah predicted utter ruin, and it was because of his insistence on surrender that he had finally been thrown into prison. But God left not, to hopeless despair, the faithful remnant who were still in the city. Even while Jeremiah was kept under close surveillance by those who scorned his messages, there came to him fresh revelations concerning heaven's willingness to forgive and to save which have been an unfailing source of comfort to the Church of God from that day to this.
1: That was our final quotation from Ellen G. White's book entitled Prophets and Kings, page 466. Even amid that prevailing apostasy and doom, God always had a faithful people, however small in number, though as with many of the prophets, much of the emphasis in Jeremiah's messages was on apostasy and unfaithfulness, because these were what the Lord wanted to save the people from. All through sacred history, the Lord had a faithful remnant. Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 tells us that he will have one until the end of time. That text describes God's faithful remnant in this way. They are those who keep and obey the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, holding firmly to it and bearing witness to him. How is the concept of the remnant expressed in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8? How does this apply to New Testament times? Woe to the shepherds, civil leaders, rulers, who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, in regard to the shepherds who care for and feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not attended to them. Hear this, I am about to visit and attend to you for the evil of your deeds, says the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries to which I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds and pastures, and they will be fruitful and multiply." I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, says the Lord. Verse 5. Behold, listen closely. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and will do those things that accomplish justice And righteousness in the land. Verse 6. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the children, of Israel from the land of Egypt. But they will say, As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries to which I had driven them, then they will live in their own land. Verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But they will say, As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries to which I had driven them. Then they will live in their own land. In verses 5, 6, and 7, Scholars have long seen a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of redemption for God's faithful people. Though it's true that after the Babylonian exile, a remnant returned, it was not a glorious return. However, God's purposes would be fulfilled through the lineage of David, through a righteous branch the king who would one day reign. This prophecy had a partial fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus. Matthew 1 and verse 1 The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son descendant of David, the son descendant of Abraham. Matthew chapter 21 verses 7-9 And they brought the donkey and the colt, and placed their coats on them, and Jesus sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, as before a king, while others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him were shouting in praise and adoration. Hosanna to the Son of David, Messiah. Blessed, praised, glorified is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And John chapter 12 and verse 13. They took branches of palm trees in homage to him as king and went out to meet him. And they began shouting and kept shouting Hosanna! Blessed, celebrated, praised is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him the Messiah was given dominion, supreme authority, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and speakers of every language should serve and worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not Be destroyed. Yes, it will have its ultimate fulfillment in the second coming, when all of God's faithful people, his true remnant, will dwell forever in peace and safety. The redemption first symbolized by the exodus from Egypt will be final, complete, and eternal. Listening, friend, Beginning now, make it your habit to trust more and more in the promises of God and their ultimate fulfillment in your own life. Honestly, what else besides the promises of God can you rely on?
0: Let's continue exploring.
1: Many years ago, a Seventh day Adventist minister named W.D. Frazee preached a sermon called Winners and Losers. In it, he went through the lives of various Bible characters, looking at their work and ministry, and then he asked the question regarding each one. Was he a winner or a loser? For example, he looked at John the Baptist, who lived a lonely life in the wilderness. Though eventually John had a small following, it never amounted to much, and certainly it was not what Jesus, who came later, had. And of course, John lived out his last days in a dank prison, where at times He was harassed with doubt, finally only to get his head chopped off. The full story is in Matthew chapter 14. After recounting all this, Elder Frazee asked, Was John a winner or a loser? What about Jeremiah the prophet? How successful was his life? He suffered a great deal and he wasn't afraid to whine and moan about it either. With few exceptions, it seems that the priests, prophets, kings, and common people not only didn't like what he had to say, but also thoroughly resented it. He was even seen as treasonous against his own people. In the end, The destruction and doom that he spent his life warning about came because time and again the people rejected his words. They threw him in a muddy pit, hoping he'd die there. He lived to see his nation go into a terrible exile while Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. From a human perspective, Not much went well for Jeremiah. From one perspective, you could argue that he had a fairly miserable life. Here are a few final points to ponder and some questions to consider. Was Jeremiah a winner or a loser? What are the reasons for the choice you made? If you say he was a winner, what does that tell you about how crucial it is that we do not judge reality by the world's standards? What standards are we to use to try to understand what is right and wrong, good and evil, success and failure? In what ways do you see the life and ministry of Jesus prefigured in Jeremiah. What are the parallels? Earlier in this exploration, we mentioned the problem of believing that occurs with religious worship without a change of heart being a deception. What is true grace in contrast to the cheap, worthless, and even deceptive version of it? Is your life an exhibit of living by true grace? It has been a pleasure exploring Jeremiah with you. I pray that you will live forever in God's grace. And until we explore once again, I pray that you will live fully in his presence until he comes just beyond tomorrow.
0: ambassadorgroup.org Thank you for exploring with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse